Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and can I warmly welcome you to the Sheldonian Theatre this evening uh, for the talk that we're just about to hear, Is God a Delusion? Uh, my name's Robbie Strachan. Uh, I'm the president of the Christian Union here at Oxford University. And it is a delight to be joined this evening by William Lane Craig, um, who will just be, in a moment, giving a lecture in response to Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Now, it would have been great to be able to welcome Professor Richard Dawkins here this evening for public debate. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it. <laughs> Richard Dawkins uh, didn't show up for that debate at the Sheldonian Theater last October. Uh, there was nothing in his place but an empty chair. But uh, since he wasn't there in his place, we decided to get a panel of three Oxford professors to respond to my talk instead. Uh, we had a good time. But having watched the Republican National Convention last month, I now realize that I missed my chance that night at the Sheldonian Theater through the magic of Eastwooding. That empty chair would have sufficed very nicely for a dialogue with Professor Richard Dawkins. So if I might invite the staff to bring out a chair for Professor Dawkins, Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to Watermark, Professor Dawkins. I am delighted that we can find. I. Uh... Now, calm down. Well, you don't have to shake my hand. You don't really even have to be on the same stage with me. That's one of the great things about East Wooding. Yes, I know you don't want to, but uh, you don't have any choice. You're being Eastwooded. <laughs> well, there are two kinds of people in the world, my friend. Those who show up and those who get Eastwooded. <laughs> you get Eastwooded. So here's what we're going to do. Since you believe that there are no good arguments for God's existence, I'm going to summarize a few of the arguments for God that I've uh, defended in my published work and then give you a chance to respond to each of them, okay? All right, here we go. The first argument I'd like to review is the cosmological argument. We can formulate it in three simple steps. One, if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, Therefore, the universe has a cause. Well, they're on the screen right here. If you just look over your right shoulder. Yes, there they are. And then having once arrived at the conclusion that the universe has a cause, we can inquire what properties such a cause of the universe must have. Now, premise one seems to me to be obviously true, at least more so than its negation. To suggest that things could just pop into being, uncaused, out of nothing, is literally worse than magic. I mean, when a magician pulls a rabbit out of the hat, at least you've got the magician, uh, not to speak of the hat. So for the universe to come into being, uncaused, 
uh, without any sort of cause at all would be literally to come into being from nothing. And that is surely absurd. Now, wouldn't you agree with that? Yes, Lawrence Krauss has argued that physics can explain how the universe came into being from nothing. But if you press Professor Krauss, he admits that he's not really talking about nothing. He's talking about the quantum vacuum, which is a sea of energy filling all of space. He's not talking about nothing. He himself says, and I quote, by nothing, I don't mean nothing. Nothing isn't nothing anymore in physics. Have you read David Albert's review of Krauss's book in the New York Times? Listen to what Professor Albert says. I quote, Krauss seems to be thinking that these vacuum states amount to there not being any physical stuff at all. But that's just not right. Vacuum states are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. Krauss is dead wrong, and his religious and philosophical critics are absolutely right. That's your response, that David Albert is a philosopher. Well, that's right. He's one of the most eminent philosophers of science in the world today, and his doctorate is in quantum physics. Dr. Dawkins, you're in no position to look down your nose at a man like David Albert. If you get into a dispute with David Albert about the proper interpretation of quantum physics, well, being he's one of the most powerful experts in the world and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, Prof? I think that's a good decision. Well, let's go on then to premise two, that the universe began to exist. This premise can be supported by both philosophical argument and scientific evidence. The philosophical arguments aim to show that there cannot have been an infinite regress of events in the past, or in other words, that the series of past events must have had a beginning. Now, these philosophical arguments are fascinating and mind-expanding, but since you're not a philosopher uh, but a scientist, let's pass those by and stick to your area of strength and go on to the scientific evidence in support of premise two. The scientific evidence is based upon the expansion of the universe. We now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning a finite time ago. In 2003, three cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin, were able to prove that any universe, which has on average been expanding throughout its history, cannot be eternal in the past, but must have had an absolute beginning. Even if our universe is just a tiny part of a much broader multiverse, their theorem implies that the multiverse itself must have had an absolute beginning. Are you aware that earlier this very year at Cambridge University at a conference celebrating Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday, that Vilenkin gave a paper entitled, Did the Universe Have a Beginning? 
in which he surveys current cosmology with respect to this question. He concluded, and I quote, none of these scenarios can actually be past eternal. He concluded, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Vilenkin does not say that the evidence for a beginning outweighs the evidence against a beginning. Rather, he says, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Vilenkin pulls no punches. He writes, and I quote, It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning, end quote. So, Professor Dawkins, do you have any response to this scientific evidence in support of premise two? No. Well, then it follows logically from the two premises that therefore the universe has a cause. Oh, this is where you object. Okay, what is your objection then? So, you think that there's absolutely no reason to endow this cause with any of the properties normally ascribed to God. Well, let's see, let's just think together about what properties the cause of the universe must possess. By the very nature of the case, as the cause of space and time, this entity must transcend space and time and therefore exists spacelessly and timelessly, at least without the universe. This transcendent cause must therefore be changeless and immaterial, since anything that is timeless must be unchanging, and anything that is material is constantly changing, at least at the atomic and molecular levels. Such a cause must also be beginningless, and uncaused since we've seen there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. This entity must be unimaginably powerful since it brought the entire universe into being without any material cause. Finally, I think that such a first cause is very plausibly personal. Let me give two reasons for this conclusion. First, the personhood of the first cause is implied by its timelessness and immateriality. The only candidates we know of that could be timeless and immaterial entities are either unembodied minds or abstract objects like numbers. But here's the rub. Abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. That's part of the definition of what it means to be abstract. The number seven, for example, has no effect upon anything. And therefore, it follows logically that the transcendent cause of the universe must be an unembodied mind. Secondly, this same conclusion is implied by the origin of an effect with a beginning from a beginningless 
cause. Just ask yourself the question, how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect with a beginning like the universe? If the cause were a mechanically operating set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without its effect. Once the cause is given, the effect is given as well. To illustrate, the cause of water's freezing is the temperature being below zero degrees centigrade. If the temperature were below zero degrees centigrade from eternity past, then any water that was around would be frozen from eternity. It would be impossible for the water just to begin to freeze a finite time ago. If the cause is permanently present, then the effect should be permanently present as well. So, in the case of the universe, how can the cause be timeless and permanent, and yet the effect only begin to exist a finite time ago? Well, it seems to me that the only way out of this dilemma is if the cause is a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will, who can therefore spontaneously create a new effect without any antecedent determining conditions. For example, a man who has been sitting from eternity could freely will to stand up, and thus you would have an effect with a beginning arise from an eternal cause. And thus we're brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. So, on the basis of the cosmological argument, we can conclude that a personal creator of the universe exists, who is uncaused, beginningless, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and unimaginably powerful. Now, those are certainly some of the properties that are normally ascribed to God. Well, right. The argument doesn't prove this cause to be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, good, creative of design, or uh, listening to prayers, reading innermost thoughts, or forgiving sins. But so what? The argument doesn't try to prove such things. Uh, it would be a bizarre form of atheism, uh, indeed not worth the name, which believed that there exists an uncaused, beginningless, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, unimaginably powerful, personal creator of the universe, who may, for all we know, also have the properties mentioned by you. Well, we don't need to call this personal creator God, if you find that unhelpful or, or misleading. But nevertheless, the point remains that a being such as I just described must exist. And you've said nothing to show the contrary. Well, sure, we can go on to the second argument. Here's a simple moral argument for God's existence. Number one, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Two, Objective moral values and duties do exist. Three, therefore, God exists. Now, what makes this little argument so powerful is that most people believe uh, in both of the premises. They just never put two and two together to draw the logically necessary inference. In fact, Professor Dawkins 
you yourself seem to be committed to the truth of both premises. With respect to premise one, you've elsewhere written, and I quote, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. So, you agree with premise one. Right. Okay, what about premise two? Now, although you say that there is no good, no evil, nothing but pitiless indifference, you, Dr. Dawkins, are a stubborn moralist. Haven't you, for example, vigorously condemned as morally wrong and reprehensible the abuse and harassment of homosexuals? Right. And how about the religious indoctrination of children? Right, tantamount to child abuse. Uh, and how about the Incan practice of human sacrifice? Right, uh, abominable. And how about God's commanding the slaughter of the Canaanites? Right, such an immoral deity. In fact, haven't you even offered your own revised version of the Ten Commandments for guiding moral behavior? That's what I thought. So, since you affirm both uh, premises of the moral argument, you are, on pain of irrationality, also committed to the truth of the argument's conclusion that God exists. Can you explain this inconsistency? No? Well, then let's go on to the teleological argument, or the argument for design. As you know, the cutting edge of the current argument for design concerns the remarkable fine-tuning of the universe for the existence of intelligent, interactive life. Here's a simple formulation of the teleological argument based on the fine-tuning of the universe. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two. It is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Now, with respect to premise one, perhaps I'd better explain to our audience what is meant by fine-tuning. This expression does not mean designed. Otherwise, the argument would be obviously circular, claiming that the best explanation of design is design. Rather, during the last 50 years or so, scientists had discovered that the existence of intelligent, interactive life anywhere in the cosmos depends upon a delicate and complex balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. If nature's fundamental constants and quantities were to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, this life-permitting balance would be destroyed and no living interactive organisms of any kind could exist anywhere in the cosmos. Now, you recognize the fact of fine-tuning, don't you? Yes, Sir Martin Rees has done a very good job of describing this remarkable fine-tuning of the universe. Good. Now, premise one simply lists the three possibilities for explaining the presence of this amazing fine-tuning, physical necessity, chance, or 
design. Are you aware of any other explanations? Good, then these are our three alternatives. And the question then is, which is the best explanation? Well, premise two addresses that question. The first alternative, physical necessity, is extraordinarily implausible because the values of the constants and quantities are independent of the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants and quantities. Right, Sir Martin Rees does reject this first alternative. And you agree with him about that. Good, we're making progress. You know, it, it's so nice to be talking with you about these things, Professor Dawkins. So what about the second alternative, that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to chance? Well, it seems to me that the problem with this alternative is that the odds against the universe's being life-permitting are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. Ah, so... To increase the chances of fine-tuning, you're prepared to postulate an infinite number of randomly ordered unseen universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse of which our universe is but a part. Right. And somewhere in this infinite world ensemble, finely tuned universes will appear simply by chance alone, and we happen to be one such world. <laughs> yes, uh, it does appear to be, uh, how did you put it, uh, an unparsimonious extravagance. So how do you respond to that objection? Now, let me get this straight. You say that if each one of these universes is simple, in its fundamental laws, then we are still not postulating anything highly improbable. Well now, Dr. Dawkins, that response just seems to me to be confused. Uh, in the first place, each universe in the ensemble is not simple, but it's characterized by an array of contingent quantities and constants. If each universe in the ensemble were simple, then why did you feel the need to postulate the world ensemble in the first place? Secondly, you're assuming that the simplicity of the whole is a function of the simplicity of the parts. And that's just an obvious mistake. Uh, think, for example, of a complex mosaic, say a mosaic of a Roman face. A complex mosaic is made up of a great number of individually simple parts, little chips of blue and green and brown, for example. The parts are simple, but the whole is complex. And in exactly the same way, an ensemble of simple universes will still be complex if those universes are randomly ordered in their constants and quantities, rather than, say, all having the same values. Look, here's what I think you need to say. You can argue that the postulate of a world ensemble is still simple if, if there is a single, simple mechanism generating the many worlds. So the question is, 
What mechanisms do you suggest for generating this infinite, randomly ordered world ensemble? Uh-huh. An oscillating model of the universe. So the idea here is that the universe has undergone an infinite series of expansions and contractions, and that each time it expands, it gets a new array of constants and quantities until finally a finely tuned universe emerges by chance alone. Uh, right. Well, let me just ask you this. Are you familiar, Dr. Dawkins, with the many difficulties facing oscillatory models of the universe which have caused contemporary cosmologists to be skeptical of them? Well, all right, never mind. You can find the references in my book, Reasonable Faith. Here's the fundamental point, however. Even if the universe could oscillate from eternity past, such a universe would require an infinitely precise fine-tuning of its initial conditions in order to persist through an infinite series of cycles. So the mechanism you're proposing is not simple. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It is fine-tuning of an infinitely precise variety. Moreover, such a universe involves a fine-tuning of a very bizarre sort because the initial conditions have to be set at minus infinity in the past. But how can that be done if there never was a beginning? Oh, okay, okay, you've got other possible mechanisms. Okay, what's that? Oh my goodness, Lee Smolin's evolutionary cosmology. All right, let me explain to our audience that according to this conjecture, black holes are portals to baby universes being birthed by ours. Universes which produce lots of black holes will therefore produce lots of offspring and therefore have an evolutionary advantage over time. Now, since black holes are the result of star formation and stars favor planets where life can evolve, the unintended effect of evolutionary cosmology is to make life-permitting universes more probable. Well, Dr. Dawkins, there are numerous problems with Lee Smolin's evolutionary cosmology. But the fatal assumption in the theory was his assumption that universes which produce lots of black holes also produce lots of stable stars. In fact, it turns out that the exact opposite is true. The most proficient producers of black holes will be universes which form primordial black holes prior to star formation. So that life-permitting universes would actually be weeded out by Lee Smolin's evolutionary cosmology. So it turns out that Smolin's scenario would actually make the existence of a life-permitting universe even more improbable. Do you have anything else to suggest? No. Well, neither of the ones that you've suggested is even tenable, much less simple. So I guess you haven't shown that your postulation of a randomly ordered world ensemble isn't 
and unparsimonious extravagance. But are you aware, Professor Dawkins, that there are even worse problems with the world ensemble hypothesis? Well, your colleague, uh, Roger Penrose at Oxford University, has shown that if our universe is just a member of a randomly ordered world ensemble, then it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing an island of order no larger than our solar system. In fact, the most probable observable universe is one in which a single brain fluctuates into existence out of the quantum vacuum and observes its otherwise empty world. Observable universes like those are simply vastly more plentiful in the world ensemble than finely tuned worlds like ours and therefore ought to be observed by us if we are just a random member of a world ensemble. Since we don't have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the world ensemble hypothesis. On atheism, at least, it is therefore highly probable that there is no world ensemble. You have it. Well, you really ought to read Roger Penrose's book uh, before you write on these things. So it, it follows from our premises that therefore the best explanation of the fine-tuning is design unless, unless the design hypothesis can be shown to be even more implausible than its rivals. So do you have any objections of comparable weight to the design hypothesis? You do. Wow, the central argument of your book. Go ahead, make my day. <laughs> Who designed the designer? That's it? That's supposed to outweigh all of the objections against the world ensemble hypothesis. Well, it seems to me that that question has no weight at all, Professor Dawkins. It comes down to this, basically. In order to recognize an explanation as the best, you don't need to have an explanation of the explanation. This is an elementary point in the philosophy of science. For example, if archaeologists digging in the ground were to discover things looking like arrowheads and pottery shards, they would be justified in inferring that these artifacts were not the chance result of metamorphosis and sedimentation, but were the result of an unknown group of people, even if they had no explanation of who these people were or where they came from. Or again, if astronauts were to discover a pile of machinery on the backside of the moon, they would be justified in inferring that this was the product of intelligent agents, even if they had no idea whatsoever who these agents were or how they got there. In order to recognize an explanation as the best, you don't need to have an explanation of the explanation. In fact, when you think about it, such a principle leads immediately to an infinite regress so that nothing could ever be explained and science would be destroyed. For before any explanation could be accepted, you'd have to have an explanation of the explanation. 
But before you could accept that, you'd need an explanation of the explanation of the explanation. But before you could accept that, you'd need an explanation of the explanation of the explanation of the explanation. And before you could accept that, and so on. Nothing would ever be explained. So, in the case of the fine-tuning, in order to recognize that intelligent design is the best explanation, you don't need to be able to explain the designer. Whether the designer has an explanation can be simply left an open question for future inquiry. What? Oh, if the designer is God, then the designer is just as complex as the thing to be explained, and so no explanatory advance is made. But Dr. Dawkins, you ought to realize, as a scientist, that simplicity is not the only criterion that scientists use in assessing rival explanations. Things like explanatory power, explanatory scope, and so forth are equally or more important. A hypothesis which has great explanatory scope might be more complex than a rival explanation, but still be preferred because it explains more things. Simplicity is not the only or even the most important criterion for assessing competing theories. But leave that point aside. The more fundamental mistake that you're making is the assumption that God is just as complex as the universe. That's plainly false. As a pure mind or consciousness without a body, God is a remarkably simple entity. A mind or a soul is not a physical object composed of parts, and therefore it is startlingly simple. Now, Certainly, a mind may have complex ideas. Uh, it might be thinking of the infinitesimal calculus, for example. But a mind itself is a remarkably simple entity, not being composed of parts. Uh, you've obviously confused a mind's ideas, which may indeed be complex, with a mind itself, which is a remarkably simple entity. And therefore, postulating a divine mind behind the cosmos most certainly does represent an advance in simplicity uh, for whatever that might be worth. Oh, you've been told this before by philosophers and theologians like Richard Swinburne and Keith Ward. If only you'd listen to them. So, to sum up, of the three alternatives before us, physical necessity, chance, or design, the most plausible explanation of the cosmic fine-tuning is design. Well, Dr. Dawkins, uh, in American baseball, we say three strikes and you're out. But let me give you a bonus swing. Let's talk finally about the famous ontological argument. The version I'll present comes from the American philosopher Alvin Plantinga. By the way, did you know that uh, Plantinga would like to debate you? Yes, I I'm serious. He told me so. Would you be willing to take him on? Yes, he is a philosopher. Well, okay, if you change your mind, he's ready and waiting. 
Plantinga's version of the ontological argument is formulated in terms of possible worlds. Now, for those in our audience who aren't familiar with the language of possible worlds, let me explain that by a possible world, I don't mean a planet or even a universe or any concrete reality. Rather, I simply mean a complete description of reality, a way reality might be. To say that God exists in some possible world is to say that there's a possible description of reality that could be true that includes the statement, God exists, as part of that description. Now, in his version of the ontological argument, Plantinga conceives of God as the greatest conceivable being, a maximally great being. So, what would such a being be like? Well, he would be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and he would exist in every logically possible world. A being which lacked any of those properties would not be maximally great. We could conceive of something greater. But what that implies is that if God's existence is even possible, then it follows logically that God must exist. For if a maximally great being exists in any possible world, it exists in all of them. That's part of what it means to be maximally great, to be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good in every possible world. So if God's existence is even possible, he exists in every logically possible world and therefore in the actual world. We can summarize this argument as follows. One, it's possible that a maximally great being, a.k.a. God, exists. Two, if it's possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in every possible world. Three, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists, uh, or rather in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. Four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. Five, if a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. Six, therefore, a maximally great being exists. Now, it might surprise you to learn that premises two to six of this argument are relatively uncontroversial. Most philosophers would agree that if God's existence is even possible, then it follows logically that God must exist. The principal issue to be settled with respect to Plantinga's ontological argument is premise one. It's possible that a maximally great being exists. The atheist has got to say that it's impossible that God exists. You've got to say that the concept of God is incoherent, uh, like the concept of a married bachelor or a round square. But the problem is that the concept of God just doesn't appear to be incoherent in that way. The idea of a being which is all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing in every logically possible world seems to be perfectly coherent. Oh, so you think you can formulate a parody of the ontological argument to prove that God does not exist. Okay, let's hear it. 
Uh-huh. And so the, the claim is that a God who created everything while not existing is greater than a being who exists and created everything. Oh, Richard, Richard, Richard. Your argument doesn't undermine the ontological argument. It actually reinforces it. For the idea of a being which creates everything while not existing is logically impossible. There is no possible world in which there exists a non-existent being who creates the world. Now, if the atheist is to maintain, as he must, that the concept of God is similarly impossible, then the concept of God would have to be incoherent in that way. But the problem is, it's not. And that supports the plausibility of premise one. You did. And how did the philosophers and theologians at that conference react to your objection? They had to resort to modal logic to refute your objection. Dr. Dawkins, this is just embarrassing. The ontological argument just is an exercise in modal logic, the logic of the possible and the necessary. I can just imagine what a spectacle you must have made of yourself at that conference. <laughs> oh, you've got to go home now. Okay, go ahead. Thanks for joining us. Say, say hello to John Lennox for me. Boy, I guess that's what happens when someone starts pontificating about things he just doesn't understand. A man's got to know his limitations. <laughs>